You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Welcome everyone to the 602 Club. Uh, we got a special supplemental for everybody tonight. I'm so excited to be in here. Uh, thanks so much for loot. Thanks so much to Ruby for uh, just letting us in uh, here on Thanksgiving weekend. Uh, she was, uh, yeah, just really kind to let us do that here and uh, just hanging out. And we're going to talk a little Star Wars tonight. Uh, and I have some incredible gentlemen to do that with me this evening. Uh, there's just Wow. Uh, with the subject we have here, we had to have a, a crackerjack team, and I'm really proud to, to welcome for the first time to the 602 Club uh, a guy you may have heard all over the internets on various podcasts and even on the radio, Mr. Scott Rifen. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hang on. Okay. Okay. The end. All right. Got it. Okay. I said, uh, <laughs> Did you finish, Scott? Yeah, just in time. I, well, I tell okay. you, it's rough. <laughs> Getting close there. <laughs> Man, it's great to have you here. Oh, it's good to be here. I'm glad uh, I've been dying for an invite forever. I'm, fine, I'm glad you guys finally, uh, you know, met up with me here. I I am so excited. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, I've heard you on so many different shows, and um, I, I I've got to say too, I just love the dulcet tones oh. uh, of Scott Rifen, and uh, I can understand why. Uh, that you're on the radio with a oh, voice like that. Well, thank so, you. Yeah, great to have you here. They're wearing themselves out very quickly. Uh, probably won't be a lot of them <laughs> left in the next five years, but uh, you know, you use it while you can. That's right. That's right. And of course, uh, you know, if we're going to do some uh, Star Wars, uh, he's got to be here. The one, the only, Bruce Gibson. Hello. Do you like my voice? I've been working on my <laughs> voice lately. <laughs> is is that what you call working? I don't know what that I feel is. Like... I'm going back to my whiny <laughs> high pitch voice or whatever. <laughs> I've got okay. going. Okay, but I'm good. impressed that Scott's got his Rogue One shirt on. That's really cool. I got my Rogue One shirt on. That's awesome. That's nice. Got, that got, is very like, nice. Yeah. It's not that one, but I've got one on too under my little Oh, nice. Here. I I don't have I uh, yeah, I had what I wore to church today. So <laughs> I didn't I You didn't wear yet, Rogue so. One to church today? No, I uh, did not. Um, but it it's it's not a church that would frown on that. So you know, right? you know, maybe and next I week. I like your church. Uh, <laughs> of course, uh, before we get started, you can find all the shows that we've got here on Trek FM Network at uh, iTunes at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. We're a feature provider. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Trek FM, Facebook, Facebook.com slash Trek FM, the listeners only discussion group there on the Facebook. You can find us there. Type Babel into the search field there on Facebook. Or if you're on our website at Trek.fm. Click discussion on the menu bar. Join us over at the Babel Conference. We'd love to have you. Uh, you can also find us through email. Trek.fm slash contact. Choose the show. Choose the 602 Club. And that comes straight to me and any of the hosts that are on that day. And last but not least, love getting voicemails. So uh, if you have read what we're going to talk about today, send us over a voicemail. I'd love to know what you think of Star Wars Catalyst. Guys, um... I wanted to ask, before we even jumped into this book, you know, the Death Star is something that has already been written about before in the Legends era, and I didn't know if either of you guys had read the book Death Star from Legends. Scott, you're <laughs> laughing. Did you read that one? Uh, well, uh, here's the funny thing, and I don't know if the camera is covering that, but uh, 
No, you can't see it on the camera, right? No, yes, you can. See it on the top shelf over here? That's Death Star in hardcover. Okay. <laughs> and see over here on this <laughs> nice. shelf, there's Death Star in paperback. Uh, oh, nice. I have Death Star on CD as well. Now, have I read it? Of course not. But when I'm ready to, I have three copies of it, and I think I have it on the Kindle. So I'm ready to go, whatever the time comes. That is that is dedication, my friend. <laughs> Just yeah. dedication. I th- yeah, it's up there. Yeah, there it is. Okay. In fact, if you'd like, I'll go ahead and start reading it now if you want. And by, oh. maybe by the end of the show, I'll have it licked. If you could read it to us, that would be wonderful. Okay, yeah. There you go. Yeah, we'll my just dulcet do that. Tones. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow, this All is right. thick. Well, yeah, I don't know if we'll do that uh, tonight. While, while Scott does that, Bruce, uh, and he starts uh, Death Star, have you ever read that one? I have not read it. I do not have a copy of any kind on my shelves. I have it on my wish list for Kindle to go ahead and get it sometime. I just haven't done that yet, but now I really want to read it since we've read Catalyst. I like to compare to see the history and legends of the Death Star compared to the history of the Death Star we've read in Catalyst. Or Scott can read it to us. I would be just fine with that too. Yeah, I mean, who needs the audio version when Scott's just going to give us the audio version for free <laughs> right. by reading it to us? That's going to be awesome. Uh, uh, it will only be here for the next, like, 12 hours. It's going to be fine. Uh, <laughs> now, I've not read it either, so it's interesting that all of us big, huge Star Wars book fans, and it's just one we never got to, but I, I figured it would be interesting to see if anybody had. I, I w- This is great. So we've never read it here on the show. I'm sure there are people screaming at us right now on their podcatchers. Send us a voicemail over there at speakpipe.com slash trekfm about why we should read Death Star because I'd love to hear some opinions about that one since none of us have read it on the or show. Or maybe they'll so. say we shouldn't read it. I don't know. <laughs> that's true. I mean, that's true. Uh, you know, I have a lot on my plate when it comes to reading, so knowing what book is worth reading is is very important to me. Well, you know, you know what happened with me is when they first started the EU publishing program in earnest in May of 1991, It was there was a book a year. I'm good with that. Uh, you know, my, my lifestyle can accommodate that. And then they started ramping up the paperback stuff and the Jedi Academy stuff started coming out. Then all of a sudden we're doing six, 12, 18 books a year. So I fell a little behind just, you know, in life. It's just like sports, you know, yeah. you fell a little behind. The time ran out and, and, and when they, you know, now it's legends. When they wiped the slate clean and started over, I said, this is my chance to start fresh. I'll read all the stuff that comes. And now I'm like, a, I don't know, eight, 10 books behind. What am I? <laughs> but you buy them all oh, that's man. the thing right oh 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 yes slavishly yeah that's this uh, if you not everyone will be able to see this obviously but uh when you look at my you see two shelves too deep of hardcovers and then the shelf below that is what i call the continuity shelf and that's the legends continuity from the beginning in order in paperback all the way through wow. to the end and it's three rows that's deep. impressive so uh, yeah, most impressive. Uh, I wish everybody could see this. It is pretty incredible uh, what what Scott has on the shelf right now. That is amazing. I moved like four times in five years and Oof. had to get rid of most of my, my paperback books because I just didn't have enough room uh, with all the moving I was doing. So I barely have any Star Wars books anymore. Um, I have one shelf right now of Star Wars books. Uh, and um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Goodness. Well, okay. So let's let's jump into Catalyst, and, and this is this is great. You know, we've got the setup here for 
Rogue One. Uh, that that this is actually called Catalyst, a Rogue One story. And I, I thought it was really interesting that they did this. You know, they did this with Episode Three with Luceno, with Labyrinth of Evil setting up. Of course, the the Clone Wars. Uh, the micro series also was doing the same thing. There was some continuity junk that went on with all that. But here we're getting one thing, one thing to set us up. And I, I, the thing that jumped out to me, and I wanted to talk to you guys first, is that this book is so much about getting to know who Jin's parents are going to be, as well as some of the other major players that we've seen in the trailer. Yes. So I thought... Uh, you know, a, a great place to start would just be to talk about them and kind of what we learn about them and who these people are. And and really, Galen Urso to me, I mean, he jumped off the page to me as a, as a character. I thought he was really fascinating. And to watch the way that he gets played by his friend was fascinating because the 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 dance between him and Orson Krennic, uh, uh, going back and forth with each other was, I mean, it's almost the way in which the Empire kind of reels the galaxy in, you know? I, I, I just, I love that mirroring. You know, uh, the the trailer that shows Orson Krennic coming and, uh, and taking Galen Erso away for Rogue One uh, does show, indicate some form of familiarity between the two, just in the looks they give each other. And I didn't have any clue at the time that that actually meant at one point they were friends, more or less. You know, that they actually somewhat had a little respect for each other. Now, maybe they were kind of of two different worlds all the time, but uh, the fact that they started off as acquaintances... You know, I actually saw a lot of Smallville in this with uh, young Lex and young Clark kind of... Yes, <laughs> that's a great call. I love that. That's... Oh, man. Now that you say that, I can't not see it. <laughs> Just kind of, you know, there's a little bit of manipulation. There's a lot of bit of manipulation. There's a, the olive branch of friendship extended. Uh, there's the misuse and abuse of that friendship. It, it it really struck me as a lot of the relationship between Clark and young Lex. Yes, and thankfully there's no Lana <laughs> in this book. <laughs> <laughs> True. No, there's just a Lyra, uh, yeah. but no Lana. So, And luckily she is nothing like Lana Lang, no, so not at which all. Is fantastic. But I do like the the Smallville comparison. That's definitely it because that's one thing I liked about Smallville is when you first meet Lex, he doesn't seem like he's a, he's a, not bad, a bad character. Guy. Yeah, he's a nice yeah. guy. You actually are rooting for him. You like the friendship, and that's the same th way it was with this. I loved seeing Orson Krennic come into this, and he wasn't the ultimate villain. He seemed at first as just being a nice guy that works in the Republic, and he's. A, you know, a good friend of, of Galen and, and, and not just Galen, but his wife too. I mean, he's very supportive of their family and he's, you know, you think he really does want to help them out, but as things go along, it doesn't always work so pretty, just like Lex and Clark. Yep. Uh, now let me ask you this before we continue on. Can we not say that James Luceno at this point owns Tarkin? I mean, between the Tarkin novel and this, I mean, he's, he's got Tarkin. I definitely think, uh, now, for me personally, Tarkin, the novel, wasn't my favorite of the new canon, mm -hmm. but I do think he understands what makes that character tick. Yes. And, and, I, and I especially think he makes, he does such a good job of crafting him, Tarkin playing off of other people, you know, whether it's Vader, the Emperor, or here Orson Krennic. Uh, I think that he, he nails what the relationship in 
is and why Tarkin is successful at navigating the Empire. Because he's cold and calculating and he has motivation and a desire to be at the top. But he doesn't make a lot of missteps because he 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 reminds me, not he he's not a, th- a Thrawn type character really. No, he's the Phantom Menace of ha- this. Yeah, he yeah <laughs> he has like a um, he really does have the same kind of mind. I feel like that a Palpatine does in some ways. Like that's Tarkin, but without the Force, yep. you know. And and so I really I agree with you. He he does really understand the Tarkin character. And I, I find when Luceno is writing him off another character, that's when he's at his best. Yeah. He does a lot of origin stories. It's like, I'm just starting to realize that with, with Plagueis and Tarkin and this, and he did the, the novel that led into, uh, revenge of the Sith with labyrinth of evil. He does a really good job. And he even did Darth Maul. And he does a really good job with these character developments and taking them from point A to point B and point B being where we know them in the movies. And so he does a really great job of just building that bridge into a into a film and, and really creating that backstory and depth into the characters in the universe. And I really enjoy that about him. I was actually talking to our buddy Shaz Bazaar last night and I was telling him, to me, Lucino is, is kind of that last link to Brian Daly. You know, those they were writing partners frequently with the Robotech stuff. They were Jack McKinney together. And uh, Brian Brian Daly was always my favorite. I mean, when I was with my birthday money from my ninth birthday, I bought Solo at Star's End, the novel, you know, in paperback. Nice. And so uh, Brian Daly's Star Wars was always my star. And then when, you know, the radio dramas, when I finally got a copy of those as a teenager or young adult, uh, again, it just, it really spoke to me. His Star Wars always did. And so this is, now that he's gone, this is the guy who, to me, is kind of that last link to Brian Daly's Star Wars. Well, and and I think that the the work that he does in in crafting his novels, one of the things that I noticed specifically about this, and especially with the character work, he gives you just enough detail to make things kind of really pop, mm-hmm. and and that's something he's really good at. He he doesn't negate planet detail, ship detail, characters, dress detail. So he paints the picture. He's not just assuming, oh, you know what this looks like. He helps you see the world in your mind. And when he also adds the history behind, whether it's a character or planet or anything like that, it adds that depth to a Star Wars story that you're looking for when you're getting a novel. You know, I don't approach any of these novels to be like the films, I want them to act as novels, and that gives you a lot of freedom to be able to add a lot of behind-the-scenes uh, information to different things. And I think, uh, you know, one of the things that this book really does is it sets the stage perfectly for what we're going to get in Rogue One, and it creates well-rounded, very interesting, fluid, dynamic characters that I can't wait to see continue. Uh, Bruce and I were talking before the show, and the idea that this is almost part one and the film was part two. Yeah. You know, and that a book feels like that in the Star Wars universe, a, a tie-in novel where you feel like, yes, you should have read that because you got so much out. That's exactly what we want. You know, you want it to feel necessary. And this feels necessary, I think, with the work that we got, especially with uh, Galen, because I think 
I have a feeling that he's going to be on screen very much like he is in the book, which is kind of shy, doesn't have a ton to say. And because of that, you need to be more inside their head. And this book really gives you that opportunity. And I thought it was interesting that Galen has a story that's a little bit similar to Anakin. He's not force sensitive, but he is very gifted. He's smart. He only has his mother left. She dies, and he's sent to the core to school, and he's alone. And he is this just genius, uh, but unlike Anakin, he's he's not outgoing. Uh, you know, he's he's driven only by his work. But I thought it was interesting some of the um, the ways in which different Star Wars characters have bits and pieces of other Star Wars characters, and I thought that was kind of interesting that connection. With, there with him because in the same sense he's also responsible for something just as bad as what Anakin ends up becoming responsible for <laughs> I mean when you think about it yeah well it's just an energy source that's all it is he's just looking to increase energy supplies no big deal yeah, <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I hadn't thought of the relationship yeah. with with uh, Anakin um, but th- yeah that's an interesting point uh, I, I, I would think that maybe Galen does like sand that might be one of the differences between the two. That's it's probably true. He's probably actually he feels like somebody who does like like camping and being outdoors, that kind of stuff. But no, it was it was just something that I thought was was kind of interesting about the character. And I also really like that he is a very principled person at the beginning of the story. Like he's a pacifist. He has no desire during the Clone Wars era, which this story starts in to be any part of any kind of weapons um, manufacturing. His goal is to create powerful, renewable energy for the galaxy. That's his desire. Mm-hmm. And it's only when Oris and Krennic can tap into that desire of his and feed him that that's what they're going to do as the Empire rolls around, that he moves forward and... It's his his desire for knowledge, like Anakin's desire for power, are his undoing. Wow. That they lead him down a path that allows him to do something that will, you know, <sighs> destroy a lot of people. Well, now, let me ask you this, because I, I often heard some of the publicity material for Rogue One refer to, to uh, Ursa's character as kind of a uh, an Edward Teller type. Uh, do you see any of that in the book? I don't know, Bruce. What do you think? I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> the guy is considered, you know, the father of the bomb. Oh, that guy. Yeah. Um, I, um, I don't know because it, I don't. There's, I guess, there's some similarities because you know the scientist mm. is always there to create something to try to make something better. But I don't know if, you know, Galen is not trying to create a super weapon. He's being used. Yeah. And I guess well, that's probably yeah. what was happening with the bomb, too. Yeah, and Teller, Teller had a large problem living the rest of his life knowing what he'd created. But did he set out to create that for the reason it was used? It was, though, well, wasn't it? Or? Uh, I, I, yeah, he was. I think he was a little more focused on having created a weapon. Uh, you know, whether he really wanted to or not. But yeah, I think he was a little more aware of the fact that he was going to kill people. Well, and it, and it was interesting too, because I, and I did see that a little bit, Scott, I think that's a, it's a and good callback. And obviously, yeah. 
Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and I think we'll definitely see that. But uh, I mean, you could almost hear him saying when he finds out what he's done, I have now become death destroyer of worlds because that's exactly what he's become. Uh, even more so than uh, <laughs> Teller yeah. at this point. Well, he literally you know, like destroyer of worlds, world. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, literal destroyer of worlds. Um, so, no, I, but I liked that about him, that he does have these principles. And, and what I thought was really interesting about the story was the way in which his wife, Lyra, was so important in his life and actually bringing him back. Because without her... You know, he said he was always doing it for Jin and his wife. Mm -hmm. But I think without her, he probably would have just continued to do what he was doing without even thinking about it because he would have been so wrapped up in it. But it's them that give him that connection to reality. And, and to use another kind of superhero reference, it reminds me of Barry Allen and with Iris where she's his lightning rod. She keeps him grounded in the universe because when he's traveling through the universe at super speed and he can bop between uh, multiverse and, and through the speed force, she's what allows him to be able to pull back out of that because the power of it would be too strong unless he had a center. And I, I thought in, in, the, in many ways she is that for Galen in this, in this book. And I, I thought that was really powerful that she's the person that, that keeps him who he is because he would just get lost in the science. Yeah, and that is that is a danger for guys like him. You talk about the brilliance that he has and, and his background, which is not one of a lot of human connection. And he actually says in the book, you know, he never really saw himself getting married, definitely never saw himself having children. But plainly, you know, I, I think, you know, a lot of us will speak to the fact that when you do have children, everything changes. And you're warned about that before the child is born, and you go, okay, yeah, I believe you, it's true. And then when it happens, it is dramatic how the entire world and how you view the entire world changes. And uh, they did a great job of portraying that through him. And that that is what will keep somebody like him tethered to reality, tethered to humanity. You know, as a scientist and you're working on something, you're so deep into it and in trying to get to where you want to go and get those results that you're looking for. And so you kind of put the blinders on. And in a lot of ways, they remind me of my parents because my dad was very successful in his job. He's now retired. But at, there was a certain period of time where my mom was always pointing out, you know, I don't know if you can trust them. And, you know, and she was always being really skeptical about what's going on and what, who, who's doing what and who's doing whatever. And my dad was just like, it's all right. It's all right. And he's just focused on the job. And then they got to him. They, they you know, they something it got bad. <laughs> but uh he didn't blow up any planets though that's the good thing we're still here <laughs> Whew, but, okay but it me. i was worried there for a second i i didn't know where this was <laughs> going because he's so into it and she was on the outside of it looking in that sometimes when you're on the outside it's easier to see maybe what's going on and that's what i think that that um lira's doing here she's she's kind of looking at everything on all angles and all aspects and he's just so focused on that one thing that i don't think he wants to believe it and that's kind of why I'm glad I, my dad was never really that successful in his job. So uh, I didn't really have a lot to, to live up to there. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, and, and I think I think that is really interesting because you're right to call out that it's not just Lyra. It's also Jin. And, and it's actually that conversation that she has with her father. I mean, she's just a little kid, but she's the one who brings him back and helps pull him out of where he was. And like you said, Bruce, 
that he's in that place where he he's telling himself the narrative that Krennic's been feeding him about what they're doing, you know, and and why they're doing it, and he's been believing those lies because he wants to continue. It it, it reminds me very much of Indiana Jones in the, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull at the very end, where she she can't pull herself away from knowing because she wants to know, but the danger of knowing will kill her, you know, and, and the danger for Galen to get where he wants to go will be the death of worlds. And I, I think, uh, you know, there is, um, there's a real sense too, uh, in that, in that area where the Jedi had been doing the g- galaxy a favor by keeping people from understanding more about kyber crystals and what they could actually do. They'd been doing the galaxy a huge favor in that sense. And now that they're gone, uh, there's nobody left to guard something that really nobody should have the power to control. Uh, And even the Jedi, who only use that power uh, for a weapon that is meant as defense. You know, and so I thought that was really interesting. A, a side road off of that, too, I guess, is, you know, there's been a lot of criticism over the years of Star Wars universe being too small of a universe. Is it a good thing or a bad thing that the super weapon on the Death Star ultimately winds up being a giant lightsaber? I say it's a good thing because that's what really I never thought of it as being a giant lightsaber. <laughs> I, and, yeah. and, and it's. It actually makes the Death Star more interesting to me now because it's just like the Death Star to me was always just the super laser. I had never mm. thought as a kid in the older days, you know, I never really thought any connection between that laser and a lightsaber. But now. To well, me- you've also you've also got now you've got that the Death Star, which is full of and you see the conference room scene. All of these people who do not believe in the force, who do not believe in the Jedi, who do not, you know, give any value to anything they do. But yet what they're about to unleash on the galaxy is essentially founded in the Jedi order. Well, they may not believe in the force and what the Jedi stood for, but they may look Mm. at a kyber crystal as just being a weapon and they're going to utilize the weapon that a Jedi had used. Mm. Well, and I think that's the, I think the most interesting thing is that it is a complete perversion of what the Jedi did because, and, and I think we can, We'll come back to some of the other characters later, but I think this is a great time to kind of jump into that idea of that, that what we really get down to in the book is everything is done for, quote unquote, the greater good. And Galen Urso realizes that the crystals have legitimately been working against him to keep him from trying to learn what he needs to learn about them that they are almost in some ways sentient crystals powered through the force, and he realizes this, and through science, he is trying to pervert, and, and really, the science he's using is a way to channel the dark side of the force, basically, through these crystals to make them act in the way that he wants them to, which is counter to their nature and i thought that to me was so fascinating to to see how that story ties in because it, it really reminded me of you know jurassic park when malcolm's like but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could they didn't stop to think if they should but it also it also parallels 
the story that's going on in the background of, you know, when we first start talking about this plan, it's a plan that the Republic is caring for. The Republic is mm-hmm. hatching. And so, you know, when Bruce talked about taking this thing that is of good and of the Jedi and perverting it, we're also watching that throughout this novel happen to the Republic itself. The Republic is being perverted into the Empire step by step throughout this book. Yeah, that's one of my favorite parts of this book, okay? Because when I watch Attack of the Clones going into Revenge of the Sith, I see that we've got this this model of a Death Star being built and I'm thinking this is being built under, of course, the guise of Separatists. Palpatine, but right, the Separatists, yeah. and that Dooku's behind all this. But what we find out in this novel is that when the Jedi won on the Battle of Geonosis, they now had the plans of the Death Star, and the Republic mm-hmm. is using that to build a super weapon to combat against the Separatists just in case they're building a super weapon. And that was so fascinating to me that the Death Star was actually created by the Republic, which, of course, turned into the Empire. So, again, that, you know, the old school in me used to think, well, the Empire built the Death Star. Well, yeah, in a sense they did, but it was started by the old Republic. And I just thought that was really cool. Well, and, and you're right on, both of you, this idea of the ways in which Palpatine has laid all the stepping stones for taking this republic to turn it into an empire and he's he's used the idea of the greater good in every single one of these areas to do so uh because they not only on top of of the republic being responsible for starting the death star project and whether it was separatists or republic it's all just palpatine <laughs> because yeah. he's the one behind it all but the empire is also lying to the scientists on the project which they call celestial power about their true objective at the same time it's hiding from the galaxy its true intentions towards these legacy planets which are basically just national parks planets that planets that have been supposedly set aside because of their natural beauty and everything like that. And the Empire has been using uh, this character that was created for the story, Has Obit. Uh, smuggler. And Krennic, yes, this smuggler, this this scoundrel, uh, being used by Orson Krennic to set up these legacy planets that they've been trying to buy weapons, quote-unquote, so that the Empire can come in and then do what they want with them. And they just legitimately... I mean, they just raise these planets. They just destroy them. They strip mine them of everything. They don't care what's left. And in the way in which that happens, I thought was really fascinating because it's the same tactic that Palpatine used during the Clone Wars to annex planets that said that they didn't want to be a part of the Republic or the Separatists, but the Separatists would invade and then the Republic would come in saying, oh, well, you guys, uh, we're here to help. And then they would never leave. So uh, it's it's the exact same tactics. It's just continuing on. And uh, the Empire has found a beautiful way to say, well, we're doing it all for the greater good. And uh, you annex planets, you, you bring them in. People may or may not even know about what's happening. It's just, uh, I, it's fascinating. And, and that's how deep this book gets. Like, there's there's so much empire building happening here. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- I think, to me, that's what was just truly fascinating about this story. Yeah, you literally get to watch the apple rot throughout this book, which I, I thought was really neat because 
as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the Death Star begins life. It's a Republic project. And we watch the war end and the Republic is triumphant, but it has now, you know, slowly become an empire. And we just we just watch the corruption take hold little by little. And it just kind of happens as a byproduct of the story. I mean, if you're not paying attention to it, you don't really notice it, but it's right there, right in front of you. Uh, and I found that to be one of the most fascinating aspects of it because it's it's a it's a little detail that didn't have to be it's it's a background detail that didn't have to be filled in. You know, you you guys are comic guys. You know, sometimes you get an artist who does great characters and then does nothing with the backgrounds. And Lucino here did this wonderful thing with the background while still giving us a lot of great character work in the foreground. Yeah, lots of background details, stuff I really like. And also, you know, at the same time, the Separatists, even though the the war is over, there's still some Separatist worlds or, or cells out there that are still fighting the Empire, the former Republic. So adding that background to it was interesting, too. Well, and that's pretty cool because those Separatists, it seems like, morph almost into the Rebellion in some ways. And and on what I love, like you're saying, Scott, this whole time, Palpatine is using this mantra of the greater good for his rise of tyranny. And, I mean, what I love, especially even just the end of the, the Clone Wars, by that point, the populace is so willing for the war to be over they are ready to believe the lie that the Jedi, who used to be heroes, were the ones who were all behind it. And, yeah, that's cool. We'll believe that narrative. You know why? Because it means the war is over. Uh, they Nobody seems to care. And what I was fascinated by here, and I wanted to ask you guys, because this really struck me, is I didn't know if it was just something that should have been more covered, but it, it, it shouldn't Lyra had a bigger problem and and Galen had a bigger problem serving the Empire at all when people that they respected, like the Jedi, were said to be this thing that we know they weren't. I, I feel like, especially with her connection, she is a huge fan of the Jedi, the, the philosophy of the Force, all of those kind of things. It was hard for me to stomach the fact that they could serve the Empire in any shape, way, or form. You know, I'm going to go back to something that got referenced in the book, and I thought it was neat that they referenced it, and that was Holonet News. Uh, I don't know if you remember Lucino mentioning that at one point in the book, actually mm, bringing that yeah. name in there. And if you remember Holonet News, the website, uh, which Lucasfilm ran, I think I think Pablo Hidalgo was a big part of that, um, they would tell the news stories that were happening in the galaxy right around episode two. And one of the things that you saw a lot of in that news feed was Jedi kind of behaving in a rogue fashion, you know, going and taking people's kids away from their families because they were force sensitive and that kind of thing. So I, I don't think it was a hard, so I think the Jedi had by episode three strayed so far from their premise. And, and, and I think Lyra actually mentions in the book that she feels like they're being clouded from really accessing the force the way they mm -hmm. need to on yeah. Coruscant. Um, I think they had strayed so far from their purpose by episode three. It wasn't that tough for people to sit back, you know, and, and at least the press accounts had gotten to that point. And well, I think the Jedi in the films had gotten to that point where they just really weren't the Jedi per se anymore. They were so reliant on tradition and, and you know, their tradition and, and how we've always done things and that kind of thing that I don't know that they were always listening to the force. And so I don't know that it was a tough flip for people in that galaxy to go, you know what? Yeah, these guys are screwed up. You know what? These guys are 
they've done some things that are in the wrong. Maybe maybe they did flip on us. Maybe they did turn. Yeah, especially if the news, the press is being played by Palpatine and and all his works that he's been doing with everyone else. I mean, the news is going to be mm-hmm. slanted, and you're going to hear that, and you're going to just all of a sudden not really. You know, I I just wonder how much the Jedi were played up in the news be, prior to attack of the clones you know how much people knew of the jedi anyway i mean they may have been this distant i mean we know there's like ten thousand jedi but in a world of billions of people they're a very very small percentage and a lot of people may not know that much about jedi now they're in the news all the time and they're not portrayed in in good light so yeah it might be easy to fall out of of a certain like of the jedi from what you've been hearing And Holonet News did have a lot of stories that were very anti-Jedi, negative towards the Jedi Order. Uh, if, if that's what the airwaves were being populated with back then, maybe it's not so hard to swallow. And I think uh, that's one of the things that I, I'm, I love you bringing up, Scott, that, that they drop in here, this idea of the Holonet News, because the, the Holonet media doesn't seem to care or, or report on what's happening in the Outer Rim and the Western Reaches as the oppression of the Empire really starts to buckle down. They don't they don't report on the what's happening with these legacy planets or anything like that. And when they do report, it's to feed the narrative that's been fed to them by the Empire. Yep. And the way in which the the news is complicit in creating the rise of tyranny, I thought, well, I I Let's just say that it's very timely. So uh, it's 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 a really fantastic look at the way in which the the airwaves and the populace can be turned because they they hear one thing over and over again, and when you hear something you know enough times, it really just kind of becomes the truth to you, whether it's true or not. And uh, so I, I thought that was really nice. And one of the main characters that's Really responsible for that is Orson Krennic. And man, is this guy fascinating. I really like this character because he's not just another Tarkin. Like, he is even more power-hungry than Tarkin. But he's also very smart at wheeling and dealing and, and, and getting what he wants and where he wants to be. And the way that he uses different characters. I mean, this guy is a master manipulator. You know, he he knows how to woo. And he gets Galen, you know, he gets Haz working for him. Uh, and it takes a lot for those two to get from out from under his thumb. And really, it's actually Lyra who is the one who helps bring both of those two back towards the light. But Orson Krennic, man, I I cannot wait to see Ben Mendelsohn in the film now because of what we got to learn about him. And and I can't wait to see what relationship they show has occurred between those two men. And it may just be a glance here and there, but even if I get that, I'm going to sit back and go, I know what that is. I know what that is. And I know where that comes from. This, I, I think that's the thing about this book is that it adds that dimensionality to that relationship. So you know, we know in, in a two-hour and whatever minutes Rogue One film, you can't have too many flashbacks to the past. But this book, like you said, Scott, it just gives you that opportunity to be like, okay, I understand where everything is coming from now, even better than those who are just watching the movie. Mm-hmm. 
And this is, you know, I've, I've read a lot of companion novels to different films and that kind of thing over the years. This is one of the better ones to me. And, and I say that, obviously, not having seen Rogue One, but it, it really gave me a sense of, I'm ready to see Rogue One now. I'm ready to move into that into that section of the Star Wars universe and and get the rest of this story. So should anybody really read this book before seeing Rogue One, or is it better sometimes to see the movie? Because now the way we approach the movie is based off this book. Our impressions are already formed on these characters, and I just wonder how that's going to affect our movie-watching experience. I think it's going to enhance it. But mm-hmm. do you re- do you need to read the book to enjoy the movie? And we can't really answer that until we see the movie. But uh, no, I'm sure not. But at the same time, uh, why not set yourself up for the best entertainment experience you can? You know, I, that's a great question, and I, I think that this book is essential reading. Does that mean you have to read it to see the movie and enjoy the movie? No, but. Is it going to expand and enhance the viewing experience? Yes. And I think that's exactly what these books are supposed to do. And therefore, I think by reading it, it makes it feel essential because we're getting so much story here with these characters. And I mean, I, gosh, it, proof positive there. I think you saw Guerrera showing up in the movie. Just about to break that up. Yeah, and did you expect to see Sagarera in this book? No. No, I did not. I didn't either. <laughs> I didn't think that was coming at all. Well, and the and the connection that he has with Galen and Lyra and Jin, I thought was fantastic. And it makes so much more sense that he would show up in Rogue One. But not only that, it also makes sense with, with Dave Filoni and and George Lucas said all those years ago about the Onderon arc was that that was the spark of the rebellion. Mm. That that was the that was the very first story of anything revolving around the rebellion, and it's proof positive because we're showing we're being shown here in this book that Saw is on the front lines. He's on the he's he's foundationally center to a rebellion starting. Uh, and I thought that idea, that that spark of the rebellion happening here in this book, we're getting character growth for the characters we're going to see in Rogue One. We're getting empire building and the birth of the rebellion, basically. I, it, God, what more could you ask for for a book setting up a movie? <laughs> yeah, and the other thing about it is that I, I was surprised that he's also a smuggler. Um, so... I was thinking he was with a ragtag group that isn't necessarily on the straight and narrow. So that was a little surprising to me, too, about Saul. And uh, But he seems to be in the right frame of mind to lead him up to be part of the rebellion. Well, and, and what's really cool about this is that, you know, the, the Empire doesn't count on this fact. And, and Saul says in the book, he says, the effect of the Empire's actions are having on the lives of people who still care about the galaxy. And the people who still care are people like Galen, Lyra, Haz, uh, and, and other people who realize that their livelihood, who they're going to be, that the galaxy is becoming a tyranny that's just, that's not what they want. And Saw has this great conversation with Haz in the book where he says, Haz is asking him uh, if it worked on Onderon, and, he's, and he says, did it work? 
Uh, did what work? Defiance. Was it enough? He said that wasn't the point. What was? He said, believing your actions mattered and believing that a good end would come of them, even if you didn't live to see the results. And Haz says, ah, cheery thought. Throw enough dirt on your enemy's fate, get crushed underfoot. And then Saul says back to him, he says, look at it this way, Haz. If we can persuade enough people to start throwing dirt, then Haz realized what he's saying. We eventually bury them. And this this whole idea of, of sparking this rebellious spirit in people, I just I, I love that Saw Guerrera is is key to that. And for me as a huge Clone Wars fan, uh, to have that work justified in this way with this character uh, is I think phenomenal because it really cements the importance of that series. I'm I'm wishing that Rebels would have that finally. <laughs> It's, it's still not there, uh, but this is cementing one of my favorite things in the Star Wars galaxy in the last 10 years. So, um, yeah, I, I was blown away that he showed up, and I couldn't have been happier with the story they gave And him. there are little echoes of, of what his interaction was, and, and as you were just discussing it, there are little echoes of that in one of the Rogue One trailers. There are little echoes of this same sentiment. But I've also noticed in the Rogue One trailers, there seems he seems to regret a little bit of this. Uh, he seems to maybe regret some of the path he's taken. Where do you think he's going to end up years later? I kind of thought that uh, we were going to see why he was in the bodysuit, uh, why he has to... I, I thought that's what we were going to see when uh, the the smugglers are attacked. Yeah. Uh, nope. I thought they might put that in this, this book, but... Um, it looks like he's going to have a tough time from the end of this book to to the beginning of Rogue One. Something is going to happen. Sounds like another um, novel, maybe. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, actually, I uh, or you know what would be kind of cool? I think too, maybe a Saw comic series. Mm, yeah, that's uh, might good. be as well, might be a good you know, choice. Marvel was supposed to do a tie-in or a lead-up series, and then that got canceled rather abruptly, if you recall. Uh, does anybody know what that was about? No, I didn't even know. I wasn't aware of that. I I never heard what they decided, where what they thought they were going yeah. to do. They uh, announced. I, I never saw that leak. Pre Rogue One series supposed to lead right up to the movie, and then all of a sudden it got yanked from the schedule. And you know what I'd heard was it had to do with the reshoots, and that the story was changing through the reshoots significantly enough to kind of nullify what the story they were going to tell. But I don't know what story they were going to tell. Well, it would have been. I mean, it would have been great. And it still would be great, I think, to go back retroactively and fill in that storyline mm. for him. Because I, I think, you know, again, uh, following him from the Clone Wars time period all the way to now, just like what they did with Ahsoka, you know, you have so much time to fill in there. And, uh, I mean, obviously, even with the Ahsoka book, we still have 17 more years of time period for them to fill in. So, I, you know, with these characters here... Uh, you're just rife with with uh, amazing storytelling possibilities. Uh, heck, you still have amazing storytelling possibilities in the prequel era in general. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, um, you know, and, uh, to me, I just wish they'd focus more on that. But uh, that's a whole other conversation <laughs> for another time. Uh, one last thing I think we should get to before we we kind of uh, come to a close. This is the Death Star story. We we started out talking about. At the beginning, you know, we, we'd had that before in Legends. There's plenty of people who have read it. But this is the official uh, canon version that spans from, you know, Attack of the Clones to the beginning of Rogue One, 
learning about the story of of the Death Star. How did you guys feel about that? I mean, did it meet your expectations? Did it exceed your expectations? What did you think? I'm watching Bruce's eyes shift left and right. <laughs> well, I must say, because I hinted at it earlier, that I would say it, it exceeded my expectations because, as I said, it started off uh, with the Republic taking the plans and starting to build the Death Star. And what really was fascinating to me is the... you know. When we saw it in the prequels, we thought, man, that's a long time it took them to build a Death Star to get to A New Hope. It was over 20 years of of working Mm -hmm. on this Death Star. And then in Return of the Jedi, the second Death Star only took like three or four years to build. So why did it take so long to build the first one? Well, now we know. It's because of those dang freaking crystals. We had to figure out how to make those work to blow up planets. And it wasn't the construction of the Death Star that took a long time. It was how to figure out how to utilize the kyber crystals to create the ultimate super weapon. So that, to me, was totally fascinating. I love the reasoning behind that. And so it exceeded my expectations. You know, I was on with Riley not that long ago. Bruce, I'm sure you've, you probably edited the, the uh, discussion we had. Um, and I talked about the fact that sometimes I get frustrated when they go back and fill in the gaps in uh, canon because sometimes it's not what I for years had in my head, and sometimes I feel like what I had in my head is better than what they did. Uh, in this case, I did not mind having this gap filled in because I thought what they came up with was plausible. It was interesting. It moved it moved the entire galaxy forward as far as uh, filling in the gaps of the story of the old republic into the empire again i found that that transition and that rot from within to be a fascinating backdrop for this thing to happen in front of so uh in, in the overall i really enjoyed it and i'm not somebody again who stands up and goes boy i'm glad they filled in that gap because a lot of times I like to fill in my own gaps. I like there to be a little mystery. I like to be able to speculate on some things. Uh, The Crispin solo trilogy is a great example of, and I know a lot of people loved it and everything, but I just, I hated the fact that they tried to explain every single stray reference ever in the trilogy, you know, and the scar and, you know, what happened with Lando and what happened, you know, and the 12 parsecs and they, you know, they try to get everything in there and, you know, answer every little illusion. I like those little illusions to be out there because sometimes they're bigger and better in my head than just a, a five-page explanation. Uh, but in this case, I really, really enjoyed what they did with it. And I, I enjoyed the the larger larger scale of the backstory. I like to think of uh, Scott's headcanon as Scott Spackle. Uh, you know, so, um, but uh, I, I'm right there with you. What, what I thought was, was great about where they take the story is that they do a fantastic job of of showing how we get from the Geonosians having these plans in Attack of the Clones to how they obviously got in the hands of the Republic and where it went from there and tying in other things. I mean, uh, the Kyber Crystal that we saw in the unfinished arc of the Clone Wars online, the Utapau arc, that crystal is the one that Galen is working on you know so uh things like that that I thought were really funny the fact that we you know what we learn about kyber crystals and how difficult they are to work with especially when I think they almost realize what you're trying to do with them and they're 
trying to counter that in every single way possible. And and it was really interesting is Galen tries to force a spiritual being, this this crystal, to bend to his will with physical science. Uh, his wife calls the force a transcendent mystery in the book. And it was interesting that he's trying to understand a transcendent mystery ordinarily and how much effort that takes and why it takes so long. On top of that, I mean, you've got production delays of every kind uh, with the Death Star itself. You're uh, legitimately having to destroy other planets by strip mining them to get the ores needed to create something this big. And at this point, the, the Empire has to do it on the down low because it's still trying to tell everybody how good it is for them. You know, so I, I felt like everything that Luceno, and I, I think we have to call it the story group here, come up with for the story makes complete and utter sense, but not in a way where you're just like, eh, well, I could have filled that in. Yes. I, I feel like this fills in gaps that you didn't even think yes. were there. Yes, it fills them in in a way that, again, I go back to the, the A.C. Crispin trilogy, and it fills them in. That that fills in a lot of these gaps in a way that went, eh, it was kind of cheap. That eh, was kind of easy. Uh, and, and in this way, it they're, they're filling in gaps in ways that make you think. They're filling in gaps in ways that make mm -hmm. you go, you know, I hadn't mm -hmm. considered that option. And I appreciate it when they do that. No, I, I'm right there with you. And and continuing the mystery, you know, or continuing the story or, or realizing that there's more to the story than you thought before uh, instead of just wrapping it up in a neat bow. Like, I don't feel like this is a bow. No, you no. Know, uh, no, it's opening up a box is what it is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, and, and it's almost as if we unwrapped that J.J. mystery box finally. Mm -hmm. But there's another mystery box inside the mystery box, you know, so we've got some of the answers, but we're waiting for more of the answers. And that's where this book does such a fantastic job of setting up the Rogue One film. And I have to say, I don't feel cheated by having read this. I feel rewarded for having read it as a fan and a, a person getting ready for the movie. And I just feel even more excited for the film now than I did before. Yep. And I was already like super pumped. Yeah, I was excited for the film, but I will say that I wasn't feeling that same thing that I felt for The Force Awakens because, uh, you know, it, it just was, you know, it wasn't the first thing in 10 years. It wasn't continuing the saga. It was going back. I was excited, but I wasn't pins and needles really dying for it to get here. And now I'm a lot more excited than I was before. Uh, I, I think I think Catalyst did a great job of whetting my appetite for more Rogue uh, more of Rogue One. Yeah, I'm with you there, Scott. Same thing, exactly. I wasn't as excited for Rogue One as it was The Force Awakens, but this book definitely got me more excited. I'm really anxious to now move on to this movie to kind of see this next part of the story that was set up in Catalyst, and then after seeing Rogue One, watching A New Hope again for the 500th <laughs> first time, <laughs> and just have those kind of three play out as one big story. It's, it's, it's a different way of, you know, taking what we know of Star Wars and turning it around in a, in a different manner. And we have always talked about what order you should watch the movies. Well, now I've got this new trilogy of this book, Rogue One and A New Hope. So it's kind of interesting. It's fun. Just a couple of quick things, and, and if you guys had any notes uh, that jumped out to you, a couple of things that I thought were fun. Uh, one, the Wren are canon again, uh, just just for anyone who enjoyed those characters. Uh, 
So they're canon again. And uh, I also really like the way in which the Empire and these two titans, Krennic and Tarkin, their desire to undermine the other gets turned on them at the end. I love how Haz uses them against each other to be able to help the Ursos get away and get himself in the clear as well. Uh, so just a couple things, and, and there are so many things like that in this book. I mean, I legitimately have six pages of notes here uh, th- because there were so many things that were just jumping out at me throughout the book. And that, you know, that's great start. That's great tie-in material. I mean, if there's anything that we can said about tie-in material is that you feel rewarded for having read it. And I, I completely feel that 100% with Catalyst. And it's interesting, you note all the different things that are in there and the double crosses. And, and again, as we've talked about, the big backstory and the almost the universe building and all of that. But at the same time, I don't want to scare people off from this book by making them think it's incredibly dense. It is not dense. It is a brisk read. It's just that's all crammed in there and you can't help but absorb it all as you're reading this adventure. Uh, it, it's not, you know, I don't want to make it sound like it's it's Lord of the Rings with all the backstory and all the history and all the songs and all the furry-footed people. Uh, it's not that. It's uh, it's it's literally a, a good, fast, breezy, uh, easy read if you want it to be an easy read. And you know, the more you want to read into it, the more is there for you. But don't be frightened of this book. Don't be scared off from this book. It, it, it gives you exactly what you want it to give you, and you can go as deep into the waters as you want to go. That is well said. I'm glad you said that because that's exactly true. I, we don't want people to think that this is too dense and and they're scared off by it. It very is a, it it very much is a easy read. I was able to read this very quickly. As a matter of fact, even to the point that I'm going to sit down and maybe read for an hour and then I look up and it's been an hour and a half and I didn't realize <laughs> it went by. So it's yeah. definitely. I, I I'm glad you pointed that out. Well, I just as much as we've talked about the details and how dense and how and how you know, there's some symbolism and there are these relationships and all these details in here. I don't want people to get scared of it. I don't want people to think, wow, this is going to this is going to take a real heavy investment because it doesn't. And that's part of the beauty of it. Well, and you also have to realize what kind of book it is. I mean, it is a book that's setting up this movie. If you're looking mm-hmm. for I mean, this isn't the kind of book that you would give to somebody for the first time they're going to read a Star Wars book, because this isn't the ultimate action adventure and humor and fun Star Wars novel. This is definitely something that's setting up a story leading into Rogue One. It's a very fascinating yeah. story with interesting characters, but it's not the action invention, action adventure fun type of book. It's it's yeah. got it's very intrigue. It's got all this all the things that we talked about but it's a very good read we've, we've geeked out all over the top of mr rushing i'm sorry yeah no, let's just no, keep no. talking i, I love just, i don't want to give love him what you guys are saying uh because i i'm so glad that you said that because this book reminds me a lot of what lost stars did for the empire uh you know the way lost stars filled in all of those gaps and helped you understand the empire and the world building behind the empire what that looked like that's and and bruce uh what you were talking about, you know, you know, you might not give this to somebody uh, as like maybe their first Star Wars book, but I was kind of thinking this actually might be a great addition to somebody who's just seen the movies and is about to see Rogue One and they've never gotten into the books before. This book gives them so much, but as you were saying, it's, I think, Scott, it's very accessible. Mm-hmm. 
very accessible because Luceno does a great job of explaining everything you need to know without making you feel like you're lost. It well, and, and, you, know, you mentioned filling in the gaps in Lost Stars, and what, what the sense I get is that James Luceno is very sure about the galaxy in which he is standing and observing things. You know, there's, there's not, he knows the universe and he knows the details of it and he knows what's in any, every crack and crevice of this universe. And you feel very confident in him as a storyteller to, to tell you a story that's going to be thorough, accurate and engaging. Which I, I, I want to ask you guys before we get out of here, uh, before Ruby kicks us out, what would you rate Catalyst here? And, and let's do, we'll do out of 10. Hmm. That gives everybody some wiggle room. And on top of your rating, should they read it before book one? Do you feel like this is a, a book that people should read before the movie? Scott? I'm going to give it an 8.891347. And the re- <laughs> I want to get it close to nine, but not quite nine. I do think people ought to read it before Rogue One. I really do. I think it, I don't know yet, but I think it will very much enhance their experience going to see this at the theater. I think they'll be able to be the guy sitting in the theater turning to the people they're with and going, I know why they're saying that. Let me tell you really quickly. Because I think they'll be able to pick up on those little details like that. I, I don't see this as a negative at all for people reading this prior to the film. Yeah, it is not a negative to read before the film. Do you have to read it? No, you don't have to read before the film. It may be interesting to hear what people think of the novel after they see the film. Sometimes you want to see a film and see how it works on its own. Then go back, read the novel, and go see the movie again a second time after the novel, and then you can see it in a different light, in a different manner. But if it were me, if someone were to ask me, should I read it before the movie? If you're a Star Wars fan. Well, Bruce, we are asking you. Oh. <laughs> He's asking right now. Okay, Matt, this is what I think you should do. <laughs> I think you should read the novel and then go see the movie. So, yes, I recommend okay. reading the book uh, before the movie. I think it's going to only enhance it. And also, I would give it probably around the same rating. I'd say, you know, an 8.5. Ah, uh, Gosh, I'm... I'm so on the same page with you guys, which is great when we're reading a book. Uh, and I, I really, I think Luceno has, he has cemented himself into that position of being the person that you want filling in these type of gaps. Uh, because I think he's just so good, like you said, Scott, he has a complete awareness and understanding of the universe he's writing in. It seems effortless for him. Uh, it, it's almost as if it just flowing out of his fingers as he's typing on his computer. It, it, you know, and and I think the 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 ease of read, which you both pointed out, was fantastic as well. Because when you're filling in this much time, it could feel daunting, but it never does. Now, there's only one thing that I would say that might have been helpful. In the book, I think maybe having time markers on the chapters. So you knew when in the procession from the Clone Wars to, the, the you know, uh, I think that might have been helpful. Although this isn't Star Trek, so we can't add star dates or whatever. Uh, but, you know, kind of giving us some way to know when in the timeline this is happening might have been helpful. I'm sure that, you know, the Star Wars timeline gold will come out and tell you exactly <laughs> when each chapter happens later on down the road one day. But that's my only criticism. You know they're doing less and less uh, of the giving you times and dates in these canon books. Yes. It's very vague. Yes. Deliberately uh, And so. I think that's on purpose yeah. for them. 
It's so they don't. Yeah. It's so they don't paint themselves into a corner. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They can move it around wherever they need to. But on, uh, with that aside, this book is fantastic. I'm going to say that I will give this a nine out of ten. And yes, I do think that this book should be read before the movie. I think you'll get a lot out of it. But I think it's only going to enhance your movie viewing experience and make it more joyful because you'll have an even fuller understanding. Now, I think the movie is going to give you a full understanding of the story. I think this will be the ultimate experience. Uh, so just like, uh, put it like this, Batman v Superman came out in the theater, then they did the extended cut. I think reading this with Rogue One, seeing it, this is the extended mm. cut. And you'll be very excited that you read it. So, guys, I, I'm, ah, I, I'm so, so hyped for Rogue One. And as we're recording this tonight... The tickets for Rogue One go on sale for the East Coast at midnight, for me in the West Coast at 9 o'clock. Super excited to buy those tickets, and I will be doing it. Well, I mean, not because of this book, but I'm even more excited to do so because of it. And that. Appreciate our associate producers here through Patreon, Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson, and making this possible uh, to, to, to make sure that we can keep bringing the shows to you each and every week on the 602 Club, and all throughout the network. Uh, we're a listener-supported network, and, and so if you have the opportunity to help us out, we'd love to have you do that. Go to patreon.com slash trekfm, and you can see how you can support the network each and every week. Every little bit helps. Again, that's patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, Scott, uh, this is your first time here yeah. on the Trek FM network, and uh, you're welcome back. <laughs> Literally any time that you want to be on Ooh, a show. Man, I was uh, worried. In the 602 Club. I, yeah. You're going to be like, Scott, you can never come back again. No, it's... no. But I want you to tell everybody about, uh, you do an incredible podcast called My Star Wars Story. Yes. And uh, so tell everybody about that, why they should be listening. And then two, where they can find you online. Uh, My Star Wars Story is, is it is an incredible podcast. And I don't say that out of any lack of humility because I think it's, it's kind of its own beast. It, it's independent of me. It just kind of, you know, it happens. Uh, and it is, of course, the story of every Star Wars fan ever, uh, but I'm just having to do it one story at a time. And we take people from all walks of life, and we sit them down and say, all right, what's the first thing you remember about Star Wars? And then take them right up to present day and uh, and set it to some rousing Star Wars music and put it out. Uh, we try once a month, but I've missed the last several because I've been very, very busy. Uh, but I've got some ready to roll off the line. Uh, very, very shortly. Uh, you can find me at uh, mystarwarsstory.com. Uh, you can also go to, obviously, iTunes for My Star Wars Story, and uh, I'm on Twitter as My Star Wars Story. So it's pretty easy. Awesome. And everybody should check it out. Uh, you, you've had some incredible guests on. Uh, I enjoyed listening to our uh, all of our friends, uh, Riley Blanton, mm. who was on there talking about his Star Wars story. So it, it's always fascinating to hear the the ways in which star yeah. wars has touched people's lives in very different ways and, and i have and i think that's what star wars story does I, and i'll tell you this yeah well what's interesting is again how dramatically different and then how incredibly similar they are at the exact same time uh and, and i will tell you one of my projects in the next several months is to take i have four and a half hours i recorded with david w collins and i've got to you know kind of pare that down into something that that is a reasonable length but he was phenomenal because that's a guy who was you know a fan grows up a fan and then gets inside and is working inside and so he brings so many different perspectives to fandom it's not even funny uh but but again i can't put out a four and a half hour episode i wish i could 
Well, just you need an extended. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, (laughs) Rifen v. David W. Collins, the extended cut. Yes, there you go. Well, Bruce, uh, thank you so much again. As always, uh, you know your seat is always here. It's got your butt print on it. Nobody else uses it. Uh, But uh, let everybody know where they can find you online, and of course, where you are on the network. I never leave the seat, even if I'm not on the show. I'm just passed out drunk here in the six (laughs) seats. That's what that That's smell what that is. is. <laughs> and speaking of my Star Wars story and Riley Blanton being on, I feel like I hear his Star Wars story every week, if not every every day. <laughs> Which leads me to the fact that I do uh, work with the Star Wars Report podcast, so you can hear me on there occasionally. And uh, I'm sure you'll be hearing us talk about Rogue One quite a bit coming up here in the next few weeks. And uh, you can follow me. Oh, wait. And I'm also on, here on Trek FM on Literary Treks, co-hosting with Dan and Matt. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. And, and put that underscore between Admiral and Rex because then you'll That's find right. him. So make sure you put the underscore in there. Uh, I Gosh, guys, I'm so uh, just jazzed about what we got to talk about tonight. And uh, I can't wait to hear what everybody's thought about Rogue One. You can find me writing uh, for the Star Wars Report. I'm now doing the book reviews, and my first one was Catalyst, so you can find that over at StarWarsReport.com. You can also find me here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones talking about Deep Space Nine. We're all praying that uh, Chris's eye will finally get to heal. Uh, So I ask you, um, send your thoughts, your prayers towards Chris, and, and that his eye would heal soon. I know that he would love that. He would love to be back in podcasting uh, but it's just not been possible. So thank you so much for, for giving us the opportunity to allow him to take care of what he needs to take care of uh, and still supporting the orb by uh, listening to the back uh, episodes. I just got somebody today uh, talking on the Babel conference there about discovering one of our episodes that they really love. So thank you so much. It, it means so much to us. And uh, you can also find me, like uh, Bruce said, there on Literary Treks and if you can't get enough uh, Star Wars, uh, you can find all of the Star Wars episodes of the 602 Club in our Star Wars A 602 Club collection feed. They are on iTunes. It has its own special feed. You can find all of those episodes. And then, of course, all the episodes are in the main feed for the 602 Club. And check us out on Aggressive Negotiations. Me and John Mills talking Star Wars every week. It's a lot of fun. We're on the nerdparty.com. And you can also find us, of course, on iTunes. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and may the Force be with you. (laughs) 